All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? <laughs> Hello out there. When 14-year-old Patricia Patsy Morris went missing from school at lunchtime, being seen last at a bus stop near Hounslow Heath, which was a nature reserve with a haunted past located in Greater London, England, it was the summer of 1980, 
and at least two infamous serial killers were hunting the surrounding area. Peter Tobin, the Scottish sex fiend whom many suspect to have been the notorious Bible John, would have been in his mid-30s and living less than two hours away on the coast of southeast England when Patsy vanished. Terrorizing his wife, Tobin was, as a way to keep the demons fed at this time, demons that would eventually convince him to kill at least three girls and rape God knows how many more, all while claiming to be a man of God. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, also in his mid-30s at the time, in the summer of 1980, when the 14-year-old was discovered on the evening of June 18th, 1980, just off of a path in the woods of Hounslow Heath, she reportedly had her school uniform shoved up around her neck and had been strangled by a one-legged pair of tights with an elaborate knot that had eventually choked her out. Her wrists were bound in front of her with a second pair of tights. She had last been seen crouching at a bus stop by her school around lunchtime near Hounslow Heath, where her parents had warned her never to enter, where her parents' parents and their parents' parents and so on back to like 1457 had passed down warning that the vast forest was dangerous, full of dark energy from its history as a prowling ground for thieves and killers. London is old. A lot has happened in such places as Hounslow Heath, a deep dark wood that makes up the stuff of nightmarish fairy tales. It's still not clear why she was at the bus stop. Had she not been feeling well at school? Was she to meet up with someone there? Regardless, she was found in the haunted forest, dumped like trash, something that was very Ripper-esque, though Sutcliffe would have been more likely to have used a hammer. The murder had clearly been sexually motivated by its nature, but an autopsy showed no obvious signs of rape, which again was odd. There had been time, clearly. The method which the 14-year-old had been bound up with her tights and strangled indicated her killer had taken his time, savored the kill. But apparently he'd chosen to either pleasure himself while admiring his work or to be satisfied with the perverse form of murder he'd chosen strangling her in such a way in which she strangled herself. At the time, investigators never considered the possibility that perhaps a 12-year-old boy was responsible. And that's why the crime scene felt so clumsy and incoherent. Neither Sutcliffe nor Tobin were ever pinned for the crime and the case went cold until 2008 when a man named Levi Belfield was arrested for crimes I'm about to cover in detail around the old, cold murder site in the haunted wood of Hounslow Heath. Though Belfield would have been only 12 years old at the time of Patsy Morris's brutal murder, this eventual and not-so-infamous serial killer had been a friend of Patsy's. Some even say he'd been her boyfriend back in 1980. Patsy was a blonde, and that's important to note, Patsy had been stolen from a bus stop also important to note. And one more. Patsy's father had received a disturbing call from what sounded like a teenage boy soon after his daughter's body had been discovered. The boy sounded local to West London by his accent, and he threatened to kill the father before hanging up. And though Patsy Morris's murder remains cold to this very moment, it's kept warm 
by the crimes of Levi Belfield, by the fact that he's admitted to her killing, then recanted it, that he used to play hooky in the woods of Hounslow Heath and was missing from school on the day Patsy Morris was dragged into the trees by some animal. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Levi Belfield, the bus stop killer. Despite humble beginnings, Levi Belfield managed to come out spoiled. And it's his mother's fault. When the boy is born a sickly runt in May of 1968, she vows to ensure her Levi will be protected. He spends much of his early life held to her bosom, breastfeeding. Mother and son are attached to the tit for far too long, into Levi's school days. There are brothers and sisters, even a father, but mother and the baby of the family, then known as Levi Rabbits, are in a world of their own. Rabbits is the family name until father dies when Levi is eight years old. Most sources say leukemia. Others say a heart attack. Regardless, the man was only 37 when he passed, leaving behind a wife and three children. Sorry, four children. I didn't see Levi there. Legs dangling out from beneath his mother's moo suckling on her teat. Rabbits. The name didn't stick. Levi's mother imposed her maiden name at this time, Belfield. The family is of gypsy stock, you see, something Levi would grow to embrace and identify himself by. Day drinking, shady deals, fistfights, cockfights, all of the typical traveler stereotypes. Though Levi would never leave the neighborhood. Levi, already unnaturally close to his mother, a mother now in full-blown gypsy mode following the death of her husband, ordering her eldest children around like henchmen to bring home stolen goods to sell while, while her wild-eyed runt lay in her lap, suckling. His mother took control, and Levi, being her favorite, became rather weird. Like many of his serial killer predecessors, it's in the eyes, dead things activated only when the brain behind begins throbbing, following a dark, dangerous, perverse thought. It's kind of funny how his name at birth was Rabbits, and that one of his first encounters with death came with him raping and murdering a rabbit, his sister's pet. And that should have served as a cause for alarm, but it didn't. Levi grew up believing he was a special boy. His mother told him this constantly, stroking his fine hair while he sucked his thumb through adolescence, then his teenage years. The two would sleep in the same bed even when Levi was an adult in his thirties. She was his safe place, the rest of the neighborhood being his danger place. But we'll get to that. Mother made her little Levi, large in his own mind. He believed the world was his playground and that everything in it was meant for his amusement. On the outskirts of London, alongside a reservoir and a nondescript row house, one of those places Dickens wrote gravely about, or from where Roald Dahl imagined Charlie Bucket shivering in the chocolate factory's shadow, in a neighborhood like so many in storied England, where the peasants gossip equally of the royals and the goings-on of Coronation Street, a menace was born nurtured. 
then set loose on the population. By the time he reached his 20s, the skinny runt of the Belfield clan was transformed. Six foot tall, 15 stone, and let me calculate that for those not living in the 12th century. 14 pounds per stone, so like 210 pounds. Oh, and he was on steroids by this time in the late 80s. A raging, squeaky-voiced issue for any that crossed his path. Levi Belfield. An entitled snob like those in the London castles, but with the pedigree of a mangy mutt, was most likely a killer of girls long before the first that we know of for certain. Lord knows he had plenty of opportunity, working as a bouncer for a club he treated like his kingdom, picking girls out of the lineup to roofie and rape upstairs inside clubs, or he'd just drive around, girls passed out in the back of his shagging wagon after he'd GHB'd them, lifting their skirts up for his pals, or charging a fee for a roll with a teenage rag doll. Yeah, Levi grew into a dirtbag of the highest order well-known by police for burglaries and assaults, but getting away with much thanks to his 17 or so aliases. Levi's a thug, running scams like booting people's cars when they went to buy drugs, clamping them, you know, with that, that red clamp you put on the tires. It was his occupation or one of them. And then once he'd booted their cars when they went in to buy the drugs from one of his own minions, he'd accept cash in the spot to take the boot off. Real greasy shit. He'd father around a dozen kids with multiple women, women whom he'd terrorize. They were his slaves, and he was their master. Horrible stories of forced sex, making them sleep on the floor, beatings where after he'd poke at the bruises as they served him lunch, Levi nearly choking on a sandwich with laughter when they cried out, putting cigarettes on the back of their heads as they bent down to grab their... Recently re-inflamed bruises, a word from Levi here on women. Other than his mother, of course, quote, You feed them, you keep them, you do what you want with them, eh? End quote. Levi stayed in any number of different homes. The traveler life, the gypsy way, but again, he never really left the old neighborhood. What the fuck was it called? Little Benty, I believe. His neighbors in any area of a neighborhood he decided to take over for a spell were intimidated. Levi kept vicious dogs around, as most scumbags do. An old man who complained of their barking woke up one morning to find his prized garden torn up. Levi did what he wanted, when he wanted. And if he had a problem with it, then you had a problem. Because like the Liverpool Football Club chant, quote, you'll never walk alone, Levi had the love and admiration of his mates. And he was rarely the only hood you had to face. You've seen soccer hooligans? Well, that big one and the wife beater with the shitty tattoos pulling the lads and headlocks as they ruin a street with bottle glass is Levi. And by many accounts, he jumped at every opportunity to dole out violence, bully, and just basically make his small soul feel large. He was known to hang out with pedophiles, one of the most notorious in West London named Victor Kelly, a.k.a. Uncle Joe, a drug dealer and suspect in over 200 sexual assaults on girls between 12 and 14 years old, using cocaine, or as he called it, butter, to addict young girls and then trap them with it, holding them in his home while he used them up 
and passed them around to others in a suspected pedophile ring, of which Levi Belfield was part of. And I'm just painting a picture, just let my brush do what it wants with the information, a little dab here, some shadowing over there. For many of us, we get the picture already, we know the type. But when it comes to Levi Belfield and all of his harm and chaos, I've only managed so far a sketch. Now to fill it in. Often when I do these stories, I don't focus a lot on the victim, and that will be the case here as well. The problem is, is when you focus on something in my position, it's like I don't need to feel more sadness, more depression, more just uh, emptiness. What I want to feel is hatred. I want to feel anger. I want to feel in a way that I've depicted this this killer as who he is and now what will happen to him at the end of it. Let's build him up and then let's just break him down because that's the way things go, like with evil. They build up, they build up, they build up. They become what they think in their own minds. It's like this great source of um, pulling energy from things to make themselves explode like egotistically powerfully and then to see that deflate is is really enjoyable for me focusing on a victim and what they did as a child and what their aspirations were and what they could have became to be i mean that's all the dead end streaks we know that they end up dead and it's super depressing to me so let's get into it and fill this in with horrific Shades of red, but never get me wrong, I I don't love these killers. I've had people reach out to me, and or I don't respect these killers. People reach out to me and be like, why do you pay so much attention to them? It's like, well, that's where it's at in this story. The victims, their story should not be this. It's it's his story, or her story, in, 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 in a small percentage of circumstances. It's his shitty fucking story, not theirs. This shouldn't be their story. It's his. He hated blondes, dirty blondes, bleached blondes, strawberry blondes, just any girl who reminded him of some past rejection. Perhaps it had come in the form of the schoolgirl, Patsy, the girl he dated briefly as a 12-year-old until she was found strangled in the woods by the bus stop. A former girlfriend had discovered a magazine with all the blondes' faces stabbed out with a knife. Young, pretty blondes, or those stuck-up little bitches looking to get their hair pulled and their makeup run as Levi saw them. This same girlfriend had caught Levi out behind her home lurking in an alley one night. Levi had admitted to her that he was waiting there for girls, that he had an overwhelming urge to stalk girls, especially the little whore types in school uniform, that he was waiting for one. And if she hadn't interrupted, he may have done it had the opportunity arose. Levi Belfield was in tears, admitting this. He didn't know why he was what he was. Later, this girlfriend went through the long leather coat Levi had been wearing and discovered a nine-inch blade in a customized pocket, along with a black balaclava, the mouth and eye holes torn open as if a soul had once escaped them. And now, if you're wondering why she never contacted the police, the answer is simple. I'll go over it again later, but she was a slave of Levi Belfield, and terrified to betray him, 
She, like his other women and so-called mates, knew that he would get them. Even if he considered crossing Levi, he'd find out. Hell, even if you hadn't considered it, he'd assume that you had at some point and he'd hurt you for it. Just to be sure everyone was clear who was doing the screwing in Levi's little patch of West London. When a 13-year-old schoolgirl named Amanda Millie Dowler went missing on March 21st, 2002, we all know who was responsible. But at the time, it was a mystery. Millie had left school on this dreary Thursday at the usual time and caught her usual train at 3.26 p.m. She then traveled with her usual group of friends until they decided to do something unusual and get off at a stop short of Millie's usual destination. The stop was Walton-on-Thames, a recently infamous area due to the kidnapping and murder of its young resident, eight-year-old Sarah Payne, who had been stolen from a cornfield she'd been playing in just two summers previous, on July 1st of 2000. Levi Belfield was not responsible for this, but the crime is important to note, as it goes to show how lightning can strike twice in these cases. Millie Dowler was getting off the bus with her friends for some fries, at a spot where the people would have been hyper-protective and sensitive about the safety of young ones, and still, Millie would soon vanish. As little Sarah Payne, eight years old, had, the third grader was plucked from the corn stalks, rudely ripped from innocence, one moment in the heaven of childhood, the next in the hell of the van of a convicted pedophile, the yellow-toothed monster Roy Whiting, Maltha, rotting maze of kernels, displayed over and over while he consume that innocence of the eight-year-old. But we have enough to unpack here without getting sidetracked by a horrific child murder case like I did for like a week. Instead, let's take a walk with 13-year-old Millie Dowler the rest of the way. Well, about half of the way. Home. After getting fries with her friends. She calls her father at 3.47 p.m. to tell him she's walking home from the impromptu snack. And by four, she is walking the half mile alone down Station Street. Levi Belfield is stalking the street. He's either in a red car borrowed from one of his many girlfriends or he's in a pathway leading to the car that's parked near a home he and his girlfriend are house sitting at. He's probably in the pathway and he probably charms Millie in there. It has been said that Levi could charm the birds from the trees but we'll never know. CCTV footage shows a red car speeding from the area just after 4 p.m. He'd got one. Lightly brown-haired, but beggars can't be choosers. He preferred blondes. Her bones would be found in September, almost six months to the day of Millie's vanishing, by an old Polish couple picking mushrooms, 25 miles from the 8th grader's last known location, out in the depths of Yately Heath Wood. The investigation was all-encompassing. Everyone was talking about it, and Levi seemed to friends and family unusually interested in the case. He was remembered to have seemed sick during this period, sweaty and pale, panic attacks, and consuming more drink and drugs than usual. His girlfriend's red car was conveniently stolen at this time and never seen again. All of the bedding in her home was thrown out by Levi, him claiming the dog had been sick on it. They'd been house-sitting the afternoon of Millie Dowler's situation. 
and Levi had been oddly out of phone contact that whole evening. Usually he'd be checking in on ex-girlfriends, checking in on friends, making sure he had control over all of their situations, which he saw as his situation. Perhaps he'd taken Millie back to the empty house, but again, we'll likely never know. It is rare that such details are shared by the lowly child killer, but like a dog that's been sick in the bed or ripped up the garbage, we can tell by looking at them that they're guilty. And though Levi Belfield is as cold as they come, the heat from such a crime smolders. The pleas and the screams and the struggle can only be exciting for so long before they become what they are. Just plain sickening. One can only hope. A saying that is always delivered. With doubt. The Hammer Man. Levi Belfield. If he felt anything resembling sickness after the murder of 13-year-old Millie Dowling, it apparently was cured by getting rid of the evidence and a period of time passing without coming under suspicion. In Jeffrey Wanzel's book covering the case, The Bus Stop Killer, Wanzel, I feel, sums up what was happening to Levi after the Millie Dowling murder. Quote, The sweats and the shakes and the way Belfield seemed to shrink in the months that followed were not signs of guilt. Levi Belfield has never showed any sign of remorse. What had happened in all likelihood is that Levi had frightened himself, end quote. It's my belief he soon became quite proud of being the unknown culprit in such a high-profile murder case of Millie Dowler, and perhaps began taking interest in the history of high-profile British murder as a result. It would explain the hammer attacks. Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, graduated quickly from using a stone in a sock to bludgeon his victims with to using a hammer and stuck with the hammer as it proved so deadly. This is a weapon that evokes a special kind of dread in the UK populace as a result and it's unlikely a coincidence that Levi Belfield, a.k.a. the bus stop killer, a.k.a. the hammer man, chose it as his own when stepping into the lore of UK serial killing. By 2003, Belfield was in his mid-30s and the now-confirmed killer and journeyman rapist of countless young girls and women was apparently, supposedly, making upwards of 50 grand a week booting cars. And if I haven't already said that already, it's just like clamping shit onto their tires so they can't move. And he had a license for this. But he'd make much of his money on the cuff. You know, he, he, would, he would just take it directly from them in cash. And he would uh, just boot whoever he wanted to. Whether or not you were in a zone that would elicit this type of treachery, he would just do it to you if he knew you were in a compromised position. And if you had a problem with it, then you had a problem with him. And they would just hand over the cash just to get out of the situation. It was quite the racket. And uh, much of what he made clamping cars, like I said, was in cash. There weren't many who would argue with the dead-eyed thug and... Again, like I said, it just seemed easier to hand over the 500 bucks, which was the charge, to be free of the clamp in their tire, as well as that hungry gaze Belfield could summon when violence appeared on the menu. Because he was flush with cash, life started to become whatever he wanted it to be, and what he wanted was to hunt and kill women, preferably blondes. 
There are at least three suspected warm-up victims before the thrill-killing began. Blitz attacks, the papers called them, all in the area of West London where Belfield reigned as a king of gypsies, or at least wannabe gypsies, a sultan of scumbags is more like it. True gypsies have a tough enough time as it is being appropriately determined without having this fucking slob claiming himself to have been one. Girls began getting hit in the back of the head with a blunt object while walking alone at night by some overweight man-child in a too-tight soccer jersey, running away to different vehicles after each assault, trying to keep his tearaways up over his runty hips and flat ass. Levi Belfield loved having different vehicles, whether owned or borrowed. He switched cars like he switched aliases. Investigators believe that these early, seemingly random attacks at the time were surely him but none deadly, until Tuesday, February 4th of 2003, when he finally got his swing down. 19-year-old Marsha McDonnell is enjoying a year off of school and has plans for university the coming fall of 2003. It is quarter to midnight when this pretty, petite blonde exits a movie. Catch me if you can, it was called. With friends... And they all say goodbye before heading to the appropriate bus stop outside the theater. Marsha's bus is a double-decker, number 111. And it shows up at 7 minutes past midnight, straight from the scene of the recent Harry Potter film. The interior of this classic two-story vehicle is lit up like a lantern, and will stay that way for the duration of its route. Marsha steps into the brightness, shows her pass, then heads to the back of the lower floor. It is raised slightly back there, making her entire form level with the windows. The visage of the red double-decker bus tottering through sleepy West London is eerie, considering Marsha's true destination is death. She seems to float in an aquarium of light for the 17-minute trip. Somewhere along the journey, a shark begins to follow, having been attracted by this potential prey unwittingly, on display. Marcia pulls the yellow line above her head once her stop at Priory Road comes into view. The bell dings, and the bus begins to slow. Behind, the predator's tail fins blink red in unison with that of its quarry. Priory is a tree-shredded street where Marcia lives with her parents, and once she disembarks the bus, it should only be a five-minute walk to the house at number 88, though tonight, it will take forever. At around 20 past midnight, David and Bernadette Fuller hear a car door slam outside their home at 60 Priory Road. The noise is so unusual for this time of night that David gets up from bed, pulls open the curtains, and looks out the window, seeing nothing but trees in the primary school across the way, all lit with a warm glow of streetlight. David crawls back into bed, with his wife. Moments later, the couple are both out of bed, staring at one another in the dim darkness as what they'll later describe as a, quote, long, continuous moan raises the hair on their necks from the street. When David finally musters the courage to see what the haunting sound source is, he'll end up peering around the hedge at the foot of his drive to discover a young woman laying in a pool of blood on the sidewalk. Marsha McDonnell is barely alive. 
The moan coming from her mouth is an error alarm being sent from her damaged brain. And when paramedics arrive, she is breathing loudly between snores and moans, shaking violently and in critical condition. Once in the ambulance and once again under bright light, Marsha's damage becomes obvious. She has been bludgeoned about the head with something, by someone. The next day, when she dies in hospital, the coroner will determine that damage to the 19-year-old's brain likely resulted from three brutal hammer blows. The concentrated impact and resulting indentation of the skull with a coin-like aspect to the wounds screamed hammer attack. She had no defensive markings. The cold-blooded assault came on without warning. And after investigators began digging, it apparently came without motive. As well. But there's always a motive. And in this case, Levi Belfield's was not rape, as it may initially have been with 13-year-old Millie Dowler. Levi now had a lust for murder, straight up. And if Patsy Morris had been the first, and Millie Dowler the second, clearly Marsha McDonald served as the third, making Levi Belfield a serial killer. But regardless of what number, if this were number two or twelve, the bus stop killer, the hammer man, had entered the nightmares of West London residents, and for those waiting on an arrest, there would be many restless nights ahead. Levi begins taking vacations, finally traveling, though not in the purest sense as his claimed Roma gypsy lineage, no. Levi Belfield is simply trying to escape the aftershocks of his first hammer attack. Though the investigation is in no way pointed in his direction, it feels like the focus could come his way at any moment. He becomes paranoid. His drug and alcohol use increases. The dreary streets and back alleys of West London, once his proud stomping grounds, now feel unstable underfoot, under the wheels of his white Toyota Privia. A passenger van Levi drives almost exclusively these days. Blacked out windows with a mattress in the back for the young girls, he continues to dose with GHB on the weekends. One night in December, while driving around the neighborhood with a friend, Levi parks in an alleyway and tells his mate to, quote, Watch this. Belfield then walks across the street towards 34-year-old Irma Dragoshi, who stands at a bus stop. It is dark. It's 7.30 p.m. The friend of Belfield, Morgan is his name, watches as Levi pulls his hood over his head and brings a hammer out before grabbing the woman and beating her to the ground with it. Levi then returns to the driver's seat, laughing maniacally, and peels out down the alleyway, leaving the woman in a heap in the rear view, his friend in shock, speechless as they drive. Soon, Levi's high-pitched laughter tapers off, and the two ride in silence for a while, eventually ending up at a pub, where after not a word was spoken about the incident, Levi knew as well as Morgan that it was between them. He put in the groundwork for absolute loyalty with his violent reputation. Morgan would only come forward once Levi Belfield was locked up for two whole life orders. The woman, Irma, survived the assault but had no memory of it. She had been looking down the road for the bus and then it was as if a shadow had swallowed her. Other girls would survive similar hammer attacks around this time, 
One initially thought she had slipped and hit her head while walking in the snow, so didn't report the incident as an assault. But the girls who had been attacked, and there was a man as well around this time, strongly believed to have been the victim of Belfield's shoddy work. Random, blunt object attacks weren't uncommon, especially with Levi Belfield on the loose in West London. A mentally unstable 16-year-old boy is brought in, and after questioning is not charged with the hammer attacks, but he is sent away to an institution after being deemed a threat to society. This seems to satisfy the public, the paranoia of the people, the heat on officials, and the killer himself enter a cool-down period as a result of this this incarceration of an innocent, mentally unstable 16-year-old. Belfield is now moving from home to home, rarely in one spot for long. He is tanned for multiple vacations, but his bloodshot eyes and dull stare betray his true state of health. He knows that he cannot stay dormant much longer. He's addicted. He's become a junkie, fiending for the kill. Levi Belfield knows he is destined to be caught, destined to take his place beside Sutcliffe and Jack the Ripper. But until then, he intends to go down swinging. May 28, 2004, little over a year since the last murder. Kate Sheedy, a petite, long-haired blonde whom fit Belfield's ideal victim profile exactly, has finished a night of celebrating with friends at the Hobgoblin Pub in West London. The Gumley House Convent, an all-girls school in Isleworth, has been their shared place of study for the past four years, a length of time that seems like forever to the 18-year-old schoolgirls. It wasn't meant to have been a farewell night, but it sure had felt like it, as the drinks had flowed and the separate schools and mine for university had been brought up. The evening had become a roller coaster of emotions for the girls. One minute, bursts of laughter, the next, some sweet nostalgia, and then, of course, by the end, there'd been tears. And now, just past midnight, Kate found herself alone, something she would have to get used to, at least for a little while, until she met new friends at her new school, new university, one with boys, one where perhaps she'd meet the love of her life. And from there, who knew what life might become? And the future waits for Kate, just up ahead. But unfortunately, so does Levi Belfield. After exiting the single-decker, well-lit bus that has betrayed her vulnerability, Kate begins walking home down Wharton Road. The street is dark and silent, save the soft idle of a white van with blacked-out windows about 50 yards away on her side of the street. Kate's instincts are good. She crosses the street to avoid directly passing the ominous vehicle, which seems to glower at her from the corner of her eye when she gets ahead of it on the other side of Wharton. The make is a Toyota Privia, known as a people carrier, and CCTV cameras have already captured it following the bus Kate had boarded around midnight and traveled over a significant distance all the way from the pub where Levi Belfield bounced on occasion, the Hobgoblin. Beyond the blacked-out windows of the Toyota, the killer is incensed. How dare this slag avoid him? Look at her, short black skirt, pink jumper, pink shoes. Thinks she's quite the pip, don't she? Thinks she's quite clever crossing the road. I suppose I should just go home now to the missus. Turn tail, call the night. She crossed the street after all. 
Now what the fuck to do? Levi flips his high beams, that's what the fuck to do, and when the girl trots back across the road, he guns it. And now the sweet deer is just a deer in the headlights. Kate appears frozen in the road, and it's just so perfect. There it is, what he wants to destroy. There's a horrible beauty to the moment. She's there, in the light, seemingly encased in it. Then he's running her straight over. Seeing the frightened, prettied-up little face be sucked under the hood is no doubt tremendously satisfying for the killer. That'll teach her. Teach her what, Levi? Teach her not to walk around flaunting what she won't give up. He puts the van in reverse, Kate Sheedy moaning underneath, and runs the girl's broken body over again, bump, bump, before speeding away, adrenaline pumping, Belfield wanting to roar like a lion, no doubt, but emitting an impotent, witch-like cackle instead because he's got that wimpy uh, little Mike Tyson voice as I mentioned earlier boom roasted the situation is no laughing matter so let's run back to where Kate is dragging herself to her purse and she's alive yes shoeless and broken but somehow she's alive and she manages to drag herself to her purse and get her cell phone out and call 911 Despite her injuries, which are significant, a lacerated liver, broken ribs, destroyed collarbone, collapsed lung, to name a few, Kate manages to crawl off of the road and is soon rescued, though her recovery, physically, mentally, will be long and difficult. Not to mention the fact that the man in the van is still out there. August 19th, 2004. A late summer's evening. 22-year-old Amélie Delagrange, a French student living in West London, Twickingham, while completing studies, is making her way home after a night out when she decides to cross a cricket field. Amelie is tired after a long night and the additional walking she's had to do as a result of missing her stop. She dozed off on the bus and has been paying the price walking through unfamiliar territory up until now. She knows that home lies just across this pitch and even though it is quite dark and foreboding, the lights from the shops and bars on the other side of the pitch are warm and welcoming. So she sets her focus on them steals herself and begins the hundred or so yard walk across the well-manicured Twickingham Green. She is halfway there, her white skirt a ghost floating across the pitch, when something from somewhere in the surrounding darkness begins making itself known. In the silence, and in a dark void, every movement of fabric becomes obscenely audible, and the young woman no doubt freezes when she hears the approaching wind of whatever Levi Belfield is wearing this night. A scream briefly halts the merriment of surrounding bar patrons. The cricket pitch is a void beyond the bubble of conversation, music, and patio lanterns. Nobody bothers to venture into it, 
even thinks to. Just kids, likely. Either that or a serial killer brutalizing a young woman. Am I right, guys? Hey, let's do a shot. Get some curry, eat a kebab, or whatever we do here in England. Around 10.30 p.m., a student walking across the pitch comes across what he thinks is a white plastic sheet. He is sent running to one of the nearby bars for help upon discovering the young woman in the fetal position, breathing lightly, her head a bloody mess. Soon, Twickingham Green is lit up with ambulance beacons. Amelia Delagrange is barely clinging to life, though she will have let go of it by midnight. CCTV footage will show that the young woman had been stalked by a white passenger van with blacked out windows as she made her way to the cricket green. A blurry image of the driver shows he is husky and Caucasian. This is the same man, the same van, from the Kate Sheedy and Marsha McDonald CCTV footage. It is now finally obvious that a serial killer is loose in West London. Images of the white Toyota Previa are spread through the media, though investigators would never find that vehicle, as the ever-paranoid, increasingly spontaneous killer in Levi Belfield would have it disposed of by one of his underground connections soon after this murder. Levi Belfield is a mess after this murder, and it's not long after his ferocious, terrifying hammer attack on the Twickingham Green that he checks himself into a hospital, complaining of panic attacks, exhaustion from drug use and stress, as well as suicidal thoughts. He is accompanied by a friend who had found Levi sobbing in bed wearing only underwear, and uh, Levi was unable to say much in that situation other than uh, that he needs help. Belfield is put under observation and given a room, but when he hears that they may transfer him to a secure psych ward for further testing and treatment, the killer leaves. His self-preservation finally kicking in. Mama, where are you? Where's the titty? Where, where, can I come in for a bit of titty, Mama? That's my English accent. May I come in for a spot of titty, Mother? And uh, his friend puts him in the hospital. It's like, holy fuck. Not the right move. I've been serial killing. The reality for many serial killers is that as the bodies pile up, they find themselves being buried beneath them rather than standing on top of them like a conqueror on the heap. That type of killer is very rare. Uh, what usually happens is that the mask begins to slip, revealing the rot, the misery that comes with the territory. It's a very rare killer, and I can't even think of one. Maybe Ed Kemper? That becomes better for it. Even in self-defense and war, just straight-up killing, people who have performed murder, not murder, the act of killing someone in self-defense and war aren't usually better for it. Um, but with murder, on top of not being better for it, they, there's, there's um, this forfeiture of peace that comes with it, I imagine. I'm not uh, admitting anything here. Every killer on the loose, even if they're incapable of guilt, has to live with the private knowledge that the law wants its way with them, that they're being hunted by the law. And that if anyone knew their true nature, they no longer want to be in their lives at all. So there, there's this, this, this fake, empty, solo, slovenly piece of shit thing walking around. 
and they might have a little bit of pride in what they've done and this power of feeling that nobody knows what they're doing. But you got to imagine that there are times in, at night, there are times early in the morning when they wake up and just look out at the world and be like, uh, I guess I just got to keep on killing girls because it's the only thing true about me at this point. Try looking forward to that over a cup of coffee. It can't feel good every day. They're alone. The murderer is alone. And there's no amount of murder that can fill that void. And you can see it in Belfield's eyes. He's haunted in these times. There's photos taken of him where he looks like a vampire, a fat, not even hungry, but just desperate-looking, over overfed vampire. He looks haunted. And he's been being consumed by the void. The abyss... It seems to be staring back at him. And it's at this point that people begin to notice. Friends and family are beginning to whisper that something's off with Levi. He no longer harasses the schoolgirls. In fact, he seems afraid of them suddenly. Perhaps he sees their faces. The face of Millie and Marcia, Kate and now Emily. The, the face of God knows how many more on those schoolgirls. Joe Collins, a former partner of the killer. That's a female. Joe. J-O is convinced it's Levi Belfield that's been hunting blonde schoolgirls. She remembers him catcalling, even when she was seated beside him when they were together, catcalling young girls in school dress at bus stops, things like, quote, come sit in my lap, come sit in my lap, you slag, I'll drive you home, eh? Oh, so I'm really sorry, I have fucking terrible at accents. Or, you know you want it, bitch, slut, little slag you. All kinds of heinous statements and insults uh, from Levi a man in his 30s with little girls of his own beside his then, I believe she was his wife, would be yelling out venomously at these 14 through 17-year-old girls in school dress, especially the blonde ones, to come over and uh, take what they know they fucking want there. Lass, is that Irish? I don't know. It is Joe Collins that is brave enough to reach out to police. Later, many will question what took so long, well, what took so long was that Levi Belfield kept a close eye on all of his current and former partners. He had a firm grip on them physically. Uh, he had a firm grip on them psychically as well. He had put in the work, the abuse, and he kept tabs on that work, ensuring the structure of it stayed solid. So when Joe came forward, she was risking her life. If investigators failed to take her seriously or if, say, Levi were not the killer, she knew he'd find out and harm her, possibly kill her, as he threatened in the past, over spilling the fucking uh, bangers and mash. But Joe was sure. She'd seen it in his eyes. She'd heard him say things like, oh, God, Joe, if you knew what he'd done, if you knew what me'd done, if you knew the wee little thing did it. No, <laughs> she'd been the one who'd found the magazines with the blonde girl's faces stabbed out. Hilarious. She'd seen him lurking in the alleys behind their home, fighting his demons. She was sure of it, that he was killing these girls. The red car from the Millie Dowler murder, the one I mentioned in the beginning, the 13-year-old, that had been her car. She'd seen it on television. And he destroyed it afterwards. And she'd known then, had tried not to know, but she knew. And now at least two more girls were dead by the hand of a man in a white van with blacked-out windows like the one Levi Belfield had just made vanish and she knew this to her knowledge because everybody knew everything Levi was doing in his 
wide circle. Anyone Levi touched, anyone Levi came across, became somebody that he owned in his wake. Thankfully, investigators, they believe her, and they look into Levi Belfield, and they immediately feel that it's him by looking at the CCTV footage, uh, by gaining knowledge that he had this white van. They'd actually taken this van in, and another charge, he had some fucking charge where he beat a guy up really badly, and they brought the van in. They'd had it in their possession at one point, and they're like, we know this guy. We, he had He had a van exactly like this, um, and he's been accused of rape, of, uh, he's been charged with burglaries and assaults. They take a hard look at Levi and they're like, of course. Oh shit. Yeah. Wait a minute. It, it is Levi Belfield, but tracking him down, even in his small stomping grounds called little Benty in West London proves difficult. He swaps addresses and vehicles like articles of clothing. He swaps those too, looking like a different person every other hour but the neck of little Benty is thin, unlike Levi's own, and the noose is soon taut. Just before dawn on November 22nd of 2004, a home where Levi was last seen entering, one he shared with a few of his kids uh, and a current woman he was with, is stormed by a special operations task force. Initially, it appears as though Belfield has eluded them once again, but when an officer enters the attic and pokes a gun into a mound of insulation, Levi Belfield emerges naked, like a bald rat, and is finally brought down. It will take years to get a conviction. Levi is not the type to just give up his secrets. He needs not to be unburdened. What he has done was never really the problem. It was the getting caught part he'd been concerned about, and now that that was over with, Belfield could relax, maybe even enjoy himself. He becomes the first UK convict to be handed two whole life tariffs, meaning no chance of parole, meaning he is guaranteed to die in prison. Twice. Since then, he has screwed with the outside world as much as he possibly can, admitting to be responsible for infamous crimes like the Chillenden murders, a case where a mother and her children were coming home from, what was it, like uh, a pool that they were swimming in, coming through the woods and... They were accosted by a man with a hammer, and he made he tied them up to trees with tape and bludgeoned them with a hammer in the woods. One of the children got away. Uh, there was a dog that got killed. I mean, that's the worst part of it, right? And it was a horrific case that I don't want to get into here in the end, but uh, because I fucking I just don't want to. Okay, <laughs> I'm sick of this fucking asshole, but. This crime, he like he he may be responsible for this, and there's a man in prison for it right now who's a piece of shit, anyways, Michael Stone or something. Uh, this case, along with others, he would confess to, and then retract his confession over the years, and then sit back laughing like a witch. There's not much you can do to a guy like Levi Belfield, a psychopathic bully with nothing to lose. He, in fact, gains notoriety and retellings such as this one. But that's just fine with me. If it makes a man feel big having the world know how he was part of a pedophilia ring and how he snuck up behind most of his murder victims then went home to cry about it, snuggled in with his mommy some nights, if that makes him feel pride over shame, then fine. You know, you win, Levi. Though the truth, however, and this is, this is a really plain truth, is that the bus stop killer... The so-called Hammer Man isn't that interesting of a story. 
though I tried my best. It's a pathetic case of wastes of life spurred on by a pathetic waste of skin who perpetrated these waste, wasting these lives in Levi Belfield. The girls from the bus stops lost their lives waiting for or walking towards the future. That's what it's all about in those school days, preparing for the future, waiting to see what it will bring. And the fact that it brought Levi Belfield is disgusting, incomprehensible, and downright depressing. And what to do about that? What to do about any of it? It's true crime. Crap. I suppose, like the girls, we just study, we prepare, and we wait for the future. One that Levi Belfield no longer has. One where, eventually, despite his best efforts, I'm certain he'll be forgotten in. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep those eyes cocked. Those doors locked. Stay paranoid.